this is the moment in which we all need to assume our responsibilities. Climate change is out of control. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathorong people. We pay tribute to their elders, past, present, and those that will earn that honour in the future. We're broadcasting from stolen land, land that was never ceded. We hope that we learn to listen to the ancient wisdom that they acquired from nurturing their land and their communities for millennia before it was stolen. It's quite extraordinary to see on both sides of the Atlantic these extreme heat conditions. I mean, the first week of July was the highest temperatures recorded in history since records began, um, given that we're seeing such extreme temperatures across the Northern Hemisphere during their summer. Uh, but we have seen... Another day in the reality of the climate emergency. It's getting out of control, as we hear the United Nations chief saying, and we can see it on TV every day now. I watch people getting killed by our out-of-control addiction to burning coal, oil and gas. Only that the media will never tell us that that's what's going on. So we allow our politicians to continue to open new coal mines and new gas projects while the planet keeps heating up. It's abnormally hot now and as the scientists predicted all along, it's not a pretty sight. On the border between Afghanistan and Iran, the news now, with three people getting shot in a fight over water rights. What's coming? Wars over water. But what surprised the climate scientists apparently, what they didn't see coming at least so fast and so soon, is the speed at which the Antarctic sea ice is shrinking and the general warming of the oceans. And we, us, the people, how do we respond? We don't. At least not if the amount of airplanes in the air at the moment is any measure of whether we care or not about that we are burning our own planet down. Flying is actually one of the fastest ways to burn the planet down, and we know that. And even so, there have never been more airplanes in the air. On the 6th of July, there were 136,000 commercial airplanes in the air at the same time. And that's a world record. It used to be before Corona, the record was something like 120,000 airplanes in the air at the same time. And this Friday was the busiest day ever for travelers in Copenhagen airport. Full airplanes. Airport executives excited talking about growth rates. And meanwhile, we see desperate young climate activists gluing themselves to the runways. And how absurd can it get? At the holiday destinations which people are flying to, ambulances are parked ready at the tourist sites because the temperatures are climbing up now dangerously close to 50 degrees. So some tourists are dying from heat strokes. While others, as this terrible thing that happened in South Korea, get drowned in tunnels full of water. The Sustainable Hour is here week after week to tell you one thing. And that is, if you think the world is going mad, you're not alone. And what we do in this program is every week we explore what can we do about it? Where are the solutions? But first of all, let's have the global outlook from our Order of Australia reporter Colin Muckett. You're ready 
Let's hear a roundup on what's been happening around the world. Yeah, thank you, Mick. And our roundup begins this week in the United Nations headquarters in New York, where Christiana Figueres, the Costa Rican diplomat who brokered the original 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change, put out a statement saying that essentially she'd had enough. I thought fossil fuel firms could change, she said, but I was wrong. She said that she had long wanted to believe that fossil fuel companies could be part of the solution to climate change. After all, with their indisputable technological expertise and immense political and economic power, they could almost single-handedly shift the world economy onto new clean energy foundations, she said. And their public statements and television advertisements pledged to do just that. But, she said, what the industry is doing with its unprecedented profits over the past 12 months have changed my mind. Higher fossil fuel prices driven by the war in Ukraine made 2022 a record profit year for the industry. But did the firms use that bonanza to shift their core business away from carbon-based fuels? No. They gave the bulk of those profits to shareholders and their own executives, even as they announced plans to expand oil and gas production. And this was confirmed here in Australia, where the Albanese government was condemned by environmental groups for its support to unlock the supply of gas from the Northern Territory's Beetaloo Basin. Scientists and environmentalists have called the plan the worst disaster for the environment that Australia could do. It could release what they call a carbon bomb of 1.4 billion tonnes of CO2 into the atmosphere, which is more than Australia's current total emissions. So it's more than we're putting out now, and they're planning to put it out in the future. It would blow Labor's lame target of reducing emissions by 45% right out of the water is the equivalent of opening 50 new coal-fired power stations in our nation. Uh, it, and it's, it's so ridiculous that we should be thinking about it at this time. Um, still, the federal government was supporting the decision to the tune of 1.5 billion Australian dollars. And that will build an export facility at Middle Arm Point in Darwin to export gas from the basin and ship it to international markets. The project is a joint development between Origin Energy and Falcon Oil and Gas, both of whom recorded record profits for last year. You would hardly think that they would need the government's $1.5 billion of our taxpayers' money. Now to the US, where scientists brought together data on what is termed the frequency of natural disasters on their continent. These range from cataphoric floods in the Hudson Valley, an unrelenting heat dome over Phoenix, ocean temperatures hitting 90 degrees Fahrenheit off the coast of Miami, and a surprising deluge in Vermont. A rare tornado in Delaware also was a part of it. The figures showed that a decade ago, 
any one of those events would have been seen as unusual. Last week, they all happened simultaneously. Now, in 1980, the average time between a billion-dollar disaster in the U.S. was 82 days. Their new figures show that between 2018 and 2022, the average time between those extreme events is now 18 days. So it's gone down from 82 to 18, and only now are we realizing it. And all this, of course, is happening against the background of heat waves in Asia, America, and Europe, and landslides and floods. Uh, but in Canada, this is very nice because the New Yorker's Bill McKibben published a new paper, a thoughtful piece about Canada and last week's record temperatures and fires that are sweeping Canada. We've crossed so many temperature records recently, he said, the hottest day ever measured by average global temperatures, the hottest week, the hottest June, the highest ocean temperatures, the lowest sea ice levels, that it would be easy to overlook a couple of additional data points. But they're important because they help illuminate not just the size of our predicament, but the political weaknesses that make it hard to confront. Fort Good Hope, which is just a few miles below the Arctic Circle, hit 99.3 degrees Fahrenheit on Saturday afternoon. It surpassed the old record by four degrees. The town of Norman Wells, a little to the south, topped 100. It was hotter there over the weekend than it has ever been in the Canadian capital of Ottawa which is 20 degrees latitude to the south. Yet none of this has been enough to really change the political dynamic there, which remains dominated by the fossil fuel industry. Justin Trudeau's government has been making noises about a plan to dramatically cut emissions, perhaps by 45% below the 2005 levels by 2030 in line with what climate scientists have set as the necessary targets. But the government quickly began to back down after a meeting in June with officials in the oil-rich province of Alberta, when the Minister of Natural Resources, Jonathan Wilkinson, explained that we have committed to a cap on oil and gas emissions, but there are lots of different ways to do that. There are flexibilities in how you design it. The targets may shrink, the timetables may fade, and incredibly, Canada may decide to count increased exports of fossil gas as one of their methods of cutting carbon. That is, they are following the Australian example. And that sobering note ends my global roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Our first guest today is Fiona Sutton-Wilson. Fiona is the CEO of the Australian arm of Earthwatch Institute, a global environmental NGO. It's been operating for 40 years in Australia. Earthwatch tackles the major environmental issues facing the planet, the ones we've been talking about, climate change, biodiversity loss, pollution through citizen science. So, Fiona... Sounds like you keep very busy right now. So tell us about what your work, what's up front for Earthwatch at the moment. 
Thanks, Tony. Uh, so Earthwatch here in Australia, we focus on a suite of areas because we have limited money and we go, right, where does it extend and where do we actually have the biggest ability to change? When you think about this, if you look at all the issues we face, they're caused by people. So Earthwatch's approach is we actually need to not just protect the, you know, buy up land to protect the forests. We actually need to be directly influencing and creating change in the behaviours we hold ourselves. So Earthwatch at its foundations was, you know, was a behaviour change organisation before behaviour change was a term. We were doing citizen science before, before citizen science was a term. And we started out doing things, uh, well, and we continue to do these things, such as um, scientific expeditions. So the first thing that Earthwatch did back in the 70s was to establish a set of scientific expeditions with eminent scientists across the world to understand what the issues are, how we were damaging the planet and what we can do. And they said, well, we can't say it, work out what to do if we don't have the information we need. And so we started going out in expeditions. And, in fact, only last week we had people from the public on expedition, our recovery of um, coral reef recovery expedition in, um, in the Great Barrier Reef where we go out and use low-tech ways of trying to increase coral abundance. So we work with James Cook University partners. We have a company funder um, who underwrites the program. And then we have we invite everyday people to come along with the scientists to go in, get them out in their snorkel and their and their diving suits, and they go out and they weed the reef. So we have a specific set of scientific transects. So there's ones that we set to see that are just the, the just to test whether the, the method's working. And we go out and we get seaweed, which is essentially smothering the baby corals, and we get people to garden the reef. And we're seeing incredibly effective outcomes from this low-tech method of being able to improve the reef recovery. And that type of approach is echoed over and over again across all those different areas that we want to tackle, biodiversity loss, climate change, uh, and so on. We take people to these extraordinary locations, work alongside eminent scientists to essentially monitor and evaluate the different interventions that we're trying to achieve to tackle the issues that we're facing. We also run education programs with schools and all sorts of things across Australia. But the main areas we tackle are wetlands because they're incredibly, incredibly important habitats, places for they sequester so much carbon, they have such high levels of biodiversity, they're critical for our, you know, for our food. Um, our, and the sustainability of our fisheries. They're a critical um, habitat and, of course, incredibly under threat through land use change. So we see wetlands as an incredibly important area of focus. Australia is one of the mega diverse countries in Australia. And so we, we conduct scientific expeditions with taxonomists. We can't recall when the last time a taxonomist was ever said in a, in a site, but we, we, We've done 38 expeditions so far across the country and discovered more than 1,800 new species to science. And we take these taxonomists, these, these scientists who are not increasing in number, they're very, um, they're, the, the, the specialty is incredibly is shrinking, and we bring along teachers to learn from them and become their research assistants so that kids in the classroom, they can be inspired by what they see the taxonomists do to document the species around the country in remote regional Australia and then be able to 
inspire the teachers or re-inspire them because, of course, you get tired doing the same thing day in, day out. And then um, young people are going, my teacher is out in, in these extraordinary locations with these experts doing things that are really important. This sounds really important, just like you said. So just explain to us a little bit about your organization. How is it going for Earthwatch? Is it growing? Are you feeling success with, in the work that you're doing? Or, or is it hard? I think that just by the introduction of today, it's hard. Um, so Earthwatch is, we've got five headquarters around the world. So our American peers, they fundamentally do most of the expeditions. And of course, that was crippled during COVID. So one of the uh, silent um, impacts of COVID for envir the environment was it stopped researchers from being able to go into the field to conduct the necessary work for um, conserving and monitoring how nature is responding and how climate change is impacting on, on the environment. And, of course, with, with that type of thing, you've got the, you know, the universities and the research sector shrank through that time, especially here in Australia. And so we're trying to restart expeditions here in Australia and finding it incredibly difficult because the people that we would have reached out to to say, let's set restart the expedition now Australia's Vanishing Frogs, uh, um, a, a microplastic program that we ran, Tipping Point, uh, the, the people that we would rely on are no longer there and so we start from the beginning. Uh, having said that, Earthwatch's approach is fundamentally collaborative and cross-sector. So we work with individuals who have no unnecessary connection to science or, or and may, may just have a love of the environment, so communities. We work directly with scientists. The other two areas, of course, that we work with are, the, are our corporations, global corporations as well as local, and governments whether they be councils, state or federal. So the work that we do is truly cross-sectoral. And to me, that's one of the keys to Earthwatch's success and how and, and the way and the type of work we do is a really critical approach to what what partnerships can uncover and to ensure that science leads on the choices that we make in terms of the impact we have. Well, that's excellent, Fiona, but it's shown up a couple of queries for, for me. The first thing I'd like to ask is once you get your citizen science participation, um, for example, scuba diving on the reef and weeding, do they tend to become convert and become more environmentally conscious in other ways? Or do they just do that one task and then go away like clean up? Day. That, Thanks, Colin. It's a great question. Uh, in fact, what that's one of the features of what we do. We're always interested to make sure what we do has long-term change. And so we actually uh, commissioned some research. Well, not commissioned. We said, here's our data. Here's where all the surveys and all the information, all the people who have engaged in our expeditions across seven or eight years. And we gave this off to one of uh, an academic, so it was completely third party. And they got their um, their PhD students to undertake the research and assessment based upon that. They then went off and did it further um, research, you know, reached out to our participants to do long-form interviews and short-form interviews. And fundamentally, the expeditions change conservation behaviours. People go along to them. 
And there's three ways that they do that. It's through going somewhere that they wouldn't typically go to. So going somewhere where either the place is terribly degraded or terribly beautiful. It's usually one or the other. (laughs) The second is that you're going with other people. So all of a sudden it's not you tackling these incredibly big issues. You're there with other people included and alongside experts as well that go, wow, we're all coming together. We all come from completely different backgrounds and yet we're all wanting to do something. The third thing that creates the change is that it's not just in the doing or the place, it's also in the contribution. Is it something bigger than myself? And that's where the science comes in because that's where the rigorous and rigor and relevance of the tasks and the activities and the data collected actually goes into something that will create a solution or is part of the solution, then lifts everyone up because the time that you invest has been for something that is tackling something bigger than ourselves. Well, good, because that brings me to the second point that I wanted to bring up, and that is uh, for years now I've been on the understanding that the biggest threat to the Great Barrier Reef by global warming is from bleaching of the corals. And yet here are you saying it's weeds. I would have thought that if there was seaweed growing in amongst it, it would have protected it from the sunlight and helped a little bit with the uh, with the bleaching. But uh, that's clearly not right. And quite, uh, I stand to be not just corrected, but I stand to learn from you what the um, weeds among the corals are doing, which is worse than climate change. Well, and so it's not that it's worse. So climate change remains, absolutely remains, the biggest single threat to coral reefs around the world. And in a healthy system, seaweed and corals live together happily. That's what they do. That's why they're there. They're meant to, the seaweed's meant to be there. The corals are meant to be there. They're doing what they need to do to protect the fish, to, to, to create the, the ecosystem that we all want and that provides such brilliant sequestration uh, as healthy oceans do for for the carbon in the atmosphere. When the system is out of sync, as it is now with climate change impacting, you have all of these unexpected consequences. And one of those is that seaweed becomes abundant, which stops coral becoming abundant. So you just have a system that is out of whack And so, yes, climate change is the single biggest threat to the coral reef. And what we have, of course, is that then there's all the the extreme weather events that then crash into it. You've got the pollutants running off from the land. You've got all of these things that are impacting, you've got, you know, ocean acidification, all these things that are are, causing the system um, multiple impacts, which is what all of our tipping points are about, that, that climate change is impacting. It's these multiple tipping points and multiple changes that are creating the acceleration that we're not because one stream of our thinking, whether it be from the business lens or the government lens or the community lens or the, you know, it, we're all looking at it from our own gaze. Uh, yeah, and so it's I'm, that intensity to, to, to try and see it from multiple perspectives. And so with this intervention, for example, we're looking specifically at, um, well, all, a lot of other people are looking at this from a technical perspective, so that's great. Let the, the, what we're looking at it from is, well, 
can something as simple as this actually be effective? And what we're finding, and which, which I wish was actually happening in my own garden, is after two or three years of weeding the reef, you actually don't need to keep weeding. The weeds are actually reducing. It's not that they're, not, they're weeds, they're seaweed, they're macroalgae, but the, these things are actually showing that there has been no issue. And now, now what we're working on is um, coral IVF. So can we now throw in a couple of coral bombs, baby coral bombs, into there to actually accelerate the, uh, the coral growth further? And so that works with James Cook University and Ames. But it's not just expeditions we do. Uh, it's just one part of the program now that we run to tackle these things because another area that we do a lot of work now is in science community partnerships, which is in one way another way of talking about citizen science. But in this perspective, citizen science fundamentally is an ecological approach to um, uh, it for us is about ecology, it's about biodiversity. And so we monitor the health of different systems across the country. And we were talk, I talked about wetlands earlier. And one of the things we found is that, and actually as a consequence of COVID, when we couldn't do as many expeditions, so some expeditions could still run because they were in Queensland and so they'd had, had a kinder response than us in Victoria had to the COVID scenario. So we had expeditions running in Queensland. Uh, but what we also found is that people look to their local communities more during that period of time. And so we've been working with communities up and down um, the, the coastlines uh, who are passionate about their coastlines and about their rivers and about the wetlands and the health of them. And so we've had these networks of, of wetlands enthusiasts. We've trained through the Mangrove Watch program. We've trained how to monitor uh, using both boat and um, land-based pieces. We've collected all of this data. And then we went, well, not only do people want to know the threats and the values of their wetland, they want to know, well, we've been observing these things changing sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, some, usually a mix of both, uh, and finding out, well, what can we do now? So the next stage that we're working on there is we get, gather groups of these local um, leaders together who have been monitoring these sites for many years. And so if I can give you a, a, um, an idea of the type of people that might be in this workshop, you might have a counsellor, an elder from the traditional owner group, the boaty, the recreational fisher, the, uh, the tourism operator because they care as well. So you've got all these people who wouldn't not, you know, might connect in some way socially, but around this specific issue they've come together because they all care about this patch and its health and what it does for them as individuals, whether it be their own, they just love the landscape and they care, whether it's I'm, I, I need the people who come and hire my boat to, like, do that, I want to be able to still catch re fish recreationally, whatever, but they care and they've come together and, they've, and so our ecologists will work through, well, this is all the data you've collected. You've told us that this is what you value and this is where it's threatened. And then we work together to prioritise what we need to do to be able to create a set of actions. So how do we protect this? Do we need to put fences up? Do we need to stop people from uh, walking through this place? Do we need to uh, create a new oyster reef out the front because of degradation? So, you know, the list is, well, do we just need to educate people on how good wetlands are? And so you get this long list of what this community has said that we think are important and we want to see something happen. And then we go, well... Or that one we can probably do for just time. But this one you might need, an, you know, an engineering and infrastructure intervention. So we're actually looking for a big 
big set of money there or this one could just be the council setting up some fences but this one might be something different so there's so that's the work that we're doing um, predominantly across northern Australia in the wetland space as well so the work that we do remains expedition based but then we also use a whole an, a suite of other tools or ways in which we can get the outcomes we're looking for which is a healthier planet healthier cli safe climate things like that
Your Royal Highnesses, Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen. The six years since the Paris Climate Agreement have been the six hottest years on record. Our addiction to fossil fuels is pushing humanity to the brink. We face a stark choice. Either we stop it or it stops us. And it's time to say enough. Enough of brutalizing biodiversity. Enough of killing ourselves with carbon. Enough of treating nature like a toilet. Enough of burning and drilling and mining our way deeper. We are digging our own graves. Our planet is changing before our eyes, from the ocean depths to mountain tops, from melting glaciers to relentless extreme weather events. Sea level rise is double the rate it was 30 years ago. Oceans are hotter than ever and getting warmer faster. Parts of the Amazon rainforest now emit more carbon than they absorb. Recent climate action announcements might give the impression that we are on track to turn things around. This is an illusion. If we think about where we're heading. Let's be clear, we are over 30 years, 32 years now since the first major scientific report on climate change that came out in 1990. And so I think when we judge where we are heading, we have to say, well, what have we done since 1990? Well, we've watched emissions go up year after year after year. They're now over 60% higher per year than they were in 1990. So there is lots that you will hear, lots of rhetoric, lots of good words, lots of, op lots of optimism about the future. But given we've known about this subject and apparently been working on it for 30 years, the trend line tells us that we are heading towards three to four degrees centigrade of warming across this century. An absolute climate catastrophe. A catastrophe for all species, including our own. And so that's the direction of travel. Now that direction of travel does not have to continue but the current trend line tells us that all we are doing so far is giving rhetoric and optimism and greenwash and not driving the levels of change that are necessary to stay within the 1.5 to 2 degrees framing of the Paris Agreement. When we think about 3 or 4 degrees centigrade, let's be clear, this is, we have no historical precedent in, in, in human history for these sorts of temperature changes. And they're occurring overnight. And they don't just occur across this century. Firstly, and we know that things like sea level rise will keep going 
for hundreds of years after that, and that we are locking in, absolutely locking in, really high levels of sea level rise, maybe seven, eight or more meters. So we may only across this century see one or two meters, which will be devastating for many of our coastal cities. And of course, most of the population of the world live near the coast. So that would be devastating for our existing communities. But we're locking in this devastation for centuries to come. But we're also changing very significantly how we will produce our food, whether we will produce enough food, where will that food be produced? And that's because we're changing the complete weather patterns of our, of our, of our society, of, of, our, of our earth. We're changing rainfall patterns, we're changing uh, insect pollination of our crops. So all of this plays out, one, one sort of disaster after another. So any single one of them, we might think, oh, we can, we can resolve, we can deal with that. But when you bring all of these together, occurring almost overnight, you're talking about the collapse of our modern society. You're talking about the collapse of most of our sort of emblematic ecosystems. So this is, this is not a future that we should in any way be, we should be heading towards and we should be doing everything we can to avoid it. The sad state of the affairs is though that we're doing nothing to avoid it. There is plenty of talk, but no action. And what we have to bear in mind is the climate only responds to action. It res the physics responds to how much carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases we put in the atmosphere. So we can talk about efficiency, we can talk about green growth and all of this stuff. It's meaningless. What really matters is keeping the emissions out of the atmosphere. Fiona, you mentioned before about the work you're doing on wetlands. Are there any of those that aren't mangrove-based that you're doing? In the past, we've done seagrass work. Um, uh, our current expertise in-house in is with um, is with coastal tidal wetlands, so mangroves across, um, there, across the coastlines and up the estuaries, and salt marsh just behind it too. So we like salt marsh. We love salt marsh and we love mangroves. Is there any particular project that you'd like to mention as being particularly successful? We were, we partnered with um, the Carpentaria Land Council Aboriginal Corporation, so the CLCAC, so the Aboriginal Corporation in far north Queensland in the Gulf, southern Gulf country. And at the same time, now poor old Great Barrier Reef has been bleached so many times, but in the bleaching of the 2015-16 summer, something catastrophic happened in North Australia, Northern Territory and um, Queensland, and that's the mangrove dieback yeah. event. Thousands of hectares of dead mangroves. We received the call from, I can't remember who, it might have been one of the land and sea rangers, to say somebody's gone in and, and done some weed spraying, crop spraying. They've, they've, they've killed our mangroves. And we did the, and, we, and the, our ecologists, our mangrove watch partners, did you know check the satellite imagery checked the different imagery and said well no we don't think it is cropping there's a lot going on so with the federal government went up and did some investigation and essentially this healthy mangrove wetlands area turned into a massive carbon storage place for the whole of the earth has turned into a carbon sink and in talking with the traditional owners there, another part of what they found was with the death of the mangroves, they've realised that they're the kidneys of the earth, but they'd also been keeping a lot of the plastic pollution out that's coming in from the Indonesian waters. 
so the death of the mangroves also showed the pollution, the marine pollution that was also coming into their space. So what we've worked with the land and sea ranges up there, so it's about uh, we mainly with Burketown Rangers and Normanton Rangers. We uh, did some training around monitoring these massive, brilliant rivers up there. So three rivers were monitored over a course of two years. We called it the Wetlands Not Wastelands program of work. And alongside that, we also trialled some um, local plastic pollution recycling work. We'd done a little bit of that in um, Indonesia to see if we can do remote community recycling because, of course, logistics is the, is, is the issue. You know, single-use plastics are impossible. Well, not impossible, but they're difficult to both remove from the environment but also to be recycled in anything useful, as is marine pollution generally. And so we're saying, but let's see if we can tackle the logistics issue. You know, if, if we've got rangers out there as part of their work is stopping feral pests and, and so on, but also removing waste from the environment, can they be doing something to actually turn an economic, turn a coin out of the, you know, thinking about pollution as a resource rather than waste, so plastic in particular. That work's still underway, but the two things that we have delivered is um, wetlands management plan, so connecting what the Carbon Tier Land Council Aboriginal Corporation's values are for that space, for these incredible wetlands, these rims are protected areas, using their knowledge the data they've collected, the analysis of an ecologist, and then going out. So, well, what is it that what program of work after these workshops with the with the community? What things do you need to do next? What needs to happen? So that that's been quite a proud piece of work for for the team in being able to support our you know brothers and sisters from the north in being able to protect. Do that you know they're doing the hard work already. They're already at the forefront of of having to deal with the, with the environmental mess. And um, this is just one small way that we can just say, well, you've got a problem with pollution, you've got a problem with wetlands, it's all combined in this one area. Let's see what we can do to, you know, to help you prioritise what it is that you want to get done to provide you with what you want to know about how to monitor the health of the environment. Fantastic, Fiona. I think everyone listening here are grateful now that we know what Earthwatch is doing, uh, how can people get in touch if they want to join, you know, that Earthwatch movement? Mm. So with, uh, with Earthwatch, we, depending on which region around the world you're from, we have um, the US office, the European office. They've got a brilliant tiny forests program, so which we're trialling here. So if anyone's interested in urban forestry, in particular Earthwatch Europe office, um, mainly in the UK and in the Netherlands. We have um, Earthwatch in India, Earthwatch in Japan, and Earthwatch here in Australia and New Zealand. So if you just look up that earthwatch.org and then whichever other end bit, so AU for Australia, UK for Europe and so on, that's what that's you'll find all the ways that you can connect in the different programs that are relevant to the region that you're in. So for us, there we've got things that range from freeways to participate through Climate Watch. So that's a, you know, monitoring the plants and animals across Australia to and how their um, behaviour is changing from climate change through to tiny forests here. With the, there's more than 200 forests have been planted now in Europe, native forests to Europe uh, uh, under the Earthwatch, our Earthwatch friends over there. And so we're starting to, to we're, we're saying, well, 
we need more green, more biodiversity in our urban spaces. They they have 30% of our endangered species called suburbs at home. So we need more of these types of um, refuges within our urban spaces as well. Uh, yeah, so the best thing to do is just check out what's happening within your within the Earthwatch organisation in your region. Mm. It's well known that, you know, if, if you have anxiety and if you feel scared about the future and all these things, the best thing to do is actually to get active, to put your hands into it. And it sounds like that that's exactly what Earthwatch is doing. And you're not doing it by going out and protesting. You're doing it by actually changing the plants and the, the environment out there. And in ways that people wouldn't think that they could. So, you know, if you want to, you were talking, you, you started, I think, Colin, talking about the Arctic edge and and some of the damage that's happening there. If you want to go and monitor alongside a scientist what a climate change and of the Arctic's edge, you can go on an expedition. It's not just exclusive to scientists. That happens every couple of months in, up there in Canada, in remote Canada. You can go do that. If you're interested in trying to improve, understand what's happening in the Amazon and un, and monitor species in the Amazon, we have expeditions going out every 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 couple of months. And we actually find this too in most of our things. Number one, it's a great introduction and usually begins, you, you know, leapfrogs you into that. But also for those of us who've been doing this for a long time, it's actually a way to rejuvenate and restore our sense of passion and equilibrium and that things are okay and that, well, that things are happening and that we can do it and you get your own nourishment from that experience as well. I hate to open up another can of worms, Fiona, but if you did fly from Australia to Canada to uh, help stand beside a scientist, you you would be doing immense damage by simply flying. You're hoping that all of the research somehow is going to improve the main problem, which is the amount of CO2 that's going into the atmosphere. It's a It's a huge conundrum for all of us, isn't it? Uh, it is, Colin, and I think that that's something to be really, really focused on. So yeah. for for some of us, we've made these personal pledges to say, well, we're not doing major, major, um, major travel, uh, you know, or uh, if we do travel, it's once every 10 years because that's what science tells us is, is the only sustainable way forward. Those of us who we're really pragmatic, Colin, at Earthwatch, though, if you're going to go on a holiday, you're going to go on a holiday and that's changing somebody's behaviour, somebody's deeply held set of values that there's X or Y happening and therefore I'm going. It's not always is it about being unthinking. It actually tends to be values-driven and values really challenge our behaviour change, you know, so we, and a lot of us hold conflicting value sets, don't we? It's not that in, in, in the way, it's not that we aren't into, we're not, we don't hold integrity within ourselves but you can still, I, we, I love travelling and I love the environment. And both of those things at the pointy end is actually a challenge. So part of the response, Colin, would be if you're in Canada, there is interesting things that you could be doing to support the environment and monitor the environment and you can do something like that. Here in Australia, you'd still have to travel to Magnetic Island. Is that going to be within your wheelhouse of comfort in terms of choices you need to make around contribution versus conservation versus how we actually tackle our approach to the environment. You're absolutely spot on in terms of these choices are difficult. And that's why the, if it was a simple problem, the problem would already be solved. What I'm very impressed about 
is when you talk about this, wow, we're all coming together effect, which is, uh, I think, very much what the climate movement as a whole is talking about and looking for. As we're seeing, you know, reality around us, reality has outrun the climate scientists by now, hasn't it? You know, we are seeing all these records being broken that, that we heard about earlier. And uh, people are getting a bit nervous. So we have one section of, of the climate movement that's getting more and more radicalized and getting out in the street and putting orange paint over the airplanes, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. And then we have another group, and this is interesting, I think, that's beginning to form, for instance, in the UK, there's a whole new movement called the Climate Majority Project. And I think we should just listen to one of the, the spokespeople for this new project, which was launched just a couple of weeks ago, Rupert Reed, who's a professor and who was also a co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, but now talks in a different way about what it is that we need to do. In this clip that where he's giving a speech to some students, he's taking his starting point from quoting Winston Churchill. It's very striking that in 1940, Churchill didn't say to this country something like, don't worry, it's all going to be fine. And he didn't say, I've got a really positive story to tell you about what the future uh, looks like. And he didn't say, this is your final warning, but if you listen to this warning, we can get it all sorted. What he said was, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And the British people responded to that. You might ask yourself, what does victory look like in the case of the climate emergency? And that's a very good question. It's much, much more difficult than a war, right? You can't just kind of win uh, and then um, go back to something like normal or at least a new normal. The truth about what's coming is hard to accept, yet we must face it to save lives and to survive. And with the precedent of World War II in mind, I want to suggest to you it's time we trusted people, it's time we trusted ourselves, it's time we trusted that when people get to hear and feel and face together the extremity of our situation, that they will respond to it adequately. And such trust, such trust of ourselves and of each other and of the nation implies, among other things, full disclosure about what is coming and what our chances are and what our options are. Because remember, it's five past midnight. We're in what Churchill called the age of consequences. But I suggest to you that we can do this, as we did before in the Second World War. Moreover, we can gain from undertaking this great work. It can give us meaning. Consider the intriguing fact, for example, that in the extremely difficult circumstances of the Second World War, suicide rates in the United Kingdom and other allied nations fell. Why was that? Well, arguably because people had something to live for amidst all the dying. Our children will only have one serious question for us when we are looking back on our lives with them. Once you knew, what did you do? Once you knew, what did you do? And that takes us to the response that myself and colleagues are bringing together to this. It's called the Climate Majority Project. Over the last several years, climate activism has become more radical, which has resulted in, in it becoming more polarizing to the general public. 
So what we accomplished with Extinction Rebellion and with Greta in 2019 really raised people's consciousness, opens people's eyes and minds and hearts. But it also caused a sort of fight, which we're continuing to see today. In the Climate Majority Project, we think that climate breakdown being self-evidently the most important issue of our time, it can't be allowed to become a factional issue. It's got to be depolarized. There's got to be a wave that everyone can be a part of and can get behind. And that's the idea of the Climate Majority Project. The idea is for parents acting as parents, professionals acting as professionals, people in their communities and in their neighborhoods acting together, people in their churches acting together. Everybody in the absence, the gross absence of sufficient political leadership starting to lead from the bottom up and pointing in the right direction. And if enough of that happens on the basis of the truth, handling the difficult feelings that have been evoked by that truth together, if enough of that happens and starts to arise and co-arise, and if people notice it, oh, it's popping up all over the place, lawyers doing the right thing, insurers starting to do the right thing, people in their local communities seeking to become more resilient. If that starts to happen at scale, then that will in turn change the political culture and make it impossible for our leaders to no longer be leaders make it certain that they will start to finally step up. And what's your role in this? Well, a key element of the Climate Majority Project is encouraging professionals to get together, to tell the truth, to disclose what they know, to disclose what they know, for example, about the vulnerabilities of our systems and our lack of preparedness, to warn, and thus to help us all to prepare, to act as professionals together, with a full professional responsibility at this extraordinary time of peril. Said Rupert Reed at the 17th European Wastewater Management Conference in the UK. You can find more about this new initiative at the website, which is simply called climatemajorityproject.com. Fiona, what's your take on what you hear Rupert Reed talk about here? I applaud the call to action across sectors in the ways that we can, in their own sphere of influence where we can take action. If we keep ignoring or keep on arguing to try and get the perfect outcome, we will fail. So what we need to do is all of us gather together towards that goal and affect the change that we can affect, whether it be at the kitchen table or at the boardroom table. I'm now I'm an old cynic. But I'm very much aware that when Churchill was talking, he was talking through one of the two medias uh, that the United Kingdom had at that time in 1940. There was only the radio and the press. And he ignited the spirit of Great Britain against their common enemy. Today, the equivalent would be Antonio Guattari's talking to the world and saying that this climate change threat that we're, we're all facing needs us all to come together and do it. And he's done it most eloquently, but it's had hardly a ripple uh, of action because his words are fragmented through hundreds of different medias and opposed by the fossil fuel industry and Rupert Murdoch's media, which controls most of the media. 
it's you're not comparing apples with apples you're comparing apples with grapes it's not even bloody oranges but Colin, that's exactly why we have the sustainable hour isn't it <laughs> yep yeah and the sustainable hour will continue to be antonio guattara's biggest groupie <laughs> I would also suggest that not everyone would agree that climate change is the common enemy. Mm. You actually have a, you know, a lot of people will look away from those headlines now. Yeah. And probably have done for a long time. So that common enemy thing is also something that we can be accused of being within our own echo chambers. Yeah. Let's end off this hour with uh, the words that uh, Antonio Guterres spoke when he spoke to some students at a science university because he actually has a similar message as as what we heard the British professor before, which is that people in their professions need to step up now. This is a time for transformation. Transformation rooted in solidarity and respect for human rights and human dignity. Some of you are already working and may realize how difficult it can be to shake up the status quo. I urge you never to give up. Never abandon the ideals of mutual understanding, cooperation, and the sense of the common good. And allow me a personal observation. When deciding on your career, resist the silent calls of companies that are destroying our planet, that are stealing our privacy, and trading in lies and hatred. They eventually will pay a lot but that's not the right thing to do. My generation has clearly failed in many respects, especially on the climate crisis. I count on your generation to keep turning up the heat on global leaders, to hold the powerful accountable, to sound the alarm, to stand up for each other, our planet and human rights, and to build a better future rooted in solidarity, equality and sustainability. The man talks sense and he's been doing it for decades and we still ignore him. All right. Thank you very much. This uh, was what we could fit in the, in the hour. And uh, let's end it here. Fiona, <laughs> you have really taken us on a very positive journey today. Let's see if we can come together more. And uh, let's take some inspiration from both you and from the UK. This is uh, what we talk about always when we end the program is that uh, the way to take leadership in this is simply to be yourself and to, to dare to be the difference in your own community or in your professional work. We all start somewhere and we all take things. So when you're meeting somebody who's able to get all their waste in one little tiny cup, it always feels negative, doesn't it? Because you're not doing as much. Whereas if you actually know that that's a journey across a long period of time, that's important that we're all taking the steps to increase our action, acknowledging though that we all started somewhere. Yep, be the difference. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Be the
watching.